Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students of Western University. I'm your host, Facundo Lidal. And I'm your co-host, Mark Ambrosio. And together we are here with... Mateus Sanita Lima. Thank you so much for being here, Mateus. Um, so I think I should start off by just asking you the broad question of what is it you're studying and maybe what is the title of your current PhD uh, thesis? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I study non-coding DNA in organelle genomes. That would be the shortest version of 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 what I study. And the working title of my thesis right now is using publicly available RNA-seq data to investigate organelle transcriptomes. Perhaps I could start at the very beginning if you wouldn't mind, Matthias. And this may be a, a dumb question, but uh, but I'm curious. What is non-coding DNA, if you, if you wouldn't mind perhaps unpacking that for me? Sure. So broadly speaking, we have two types of DNA. We have co- coding DNA and non-coding DNA. So coding DNA would be the fragments of DNA that encode for proteins, right? So okay. historically saying coding DNA is the fragment, the fragments of DNA that have been mostly studied. These are the parts of the DNA molecules that we know the most. Non-coding DNA are the fragments that usually sit in between the coding fragments and they do not encode for proteins. Uh, and we don't know exactly what they're doing there, but they're sh- they, sh- they should have a, a function, let's say. Are we, uh, and by way of follow-up, if I may, are we less familiar in terms of our academic knowledge with non-coding DNA, i.e. is there more for us to learn? Absolutely, absolutely. The biggest issue with non-coding sequences or non-coding DNA really is the low sequence conservation because in evolutionary terms, coding sequences, which are also called protein-coding genes, are highly conserved. So if I compare a gene, any gene, coming from a plant and you know a gene coming from humans, those two genes, their structure, their sequence will be very similar. They will have differences, of course, that, that have been accumulated over time, but the genes, the protein coding genes are similar. Now, when you compare non-coding sequences, because they are not coding for proteins, they can change rapidly in evolutionary terms, in evolutionary uh, time scale, if you will. So we know very little about uh, they're conserved. So we know they are not conserved, but we know very little of what they are doing, whether they have biological function. Okay, thank you. That was very helpful. I appreciate that. And yeah, so if, if I'm not mistaken, I remember from uh, intro biology class that there is proportionally a lot more uh, non-coding genes than there are coding genes. Um, yes, well, that's a great question. I'm very happy you asked that because uh, this has been a, a, a puzzle to, I would say, to genomicists, evolutionary genomicists, because in eukaryotes, and I know this is a term that not everyone is aware of, and I can explain later what this means. So in eukaryotes, the genomes are bloated, meaning that most of those genomes are for, are composed of non-coding sequences. So for instance, if you take the human genome as an example, our genome is has around 3 billion base pairs or 3 billion nucleotides, the letters, the four letters that form our DNA, and only 2% depending on the estimates, actually 1.8% of that genome encodes for proteins. So if you will, 98% of our genome is non-coding. That's crazy. Meaning it's not producing proteins oh. and we don't know what's doing. Yeah, and and so historically have um, uh, uh, people people in this field, have they just sort of uh, 
put their hands up and said, we have no idea what, what's going on with these 90%, 98% of genes or uh, what, what's been, has there always been sort of a strive to tackle what exactly they're there for and what's their purpose or if they're just um, like, there, there's no reason at all for them? Yeah, so we, we, were sh we were certain about the quantity of non-coding DNA in human genomes after the Human Genome Project, which started in early 90s and ended in the early 2000s. So when the human genome um, was fully sequenced, that was when we realized, wow, you know, our genomes are bloated uh, and uh, we have very little protein coding genes. But even before that, decades before that, scientists, they were already aware of gene of genomes coming from eukaryotes being bloated because they were using different techniques at the time they weren't sequence, sequencing the dna sequence themselves they were just measuring the weight of the nuclear genomes and they could already tell that look given the complexity of these organisms and given the the gene number estimates we have uh we believe those genomes are bloated and they didn't know what they were bloated with so it's been something that uh, the field of genomics has always grappled with. Uh, and I would say there are almost two fronts. So we have the front of evolutionary biologists, which who try to explain in evolutionary terms why those non-coding sequences are sitting there. But then you also have uh, molecular biologists who are trying to dissect those sequences in terms of, oh, what happens if I delete a particular fragment in this non-coding region? So um, yeah, it's been a puzzle, but people have been talking about it for decades now. Wow, very interesting. And uh, sorry, so I, I'm kind of curious, so I just kind of have a follow-up with what you just said there. So uh, you mentioned uh, evolutionary theorists and uh, molecular biologists. Uh, do they have sort of conflicting ideas of what it is the non-coding genes do, or uh, do they have uh, some sort of consensus? Uh, what's sort of going on there? Do you have any idea? Sure, yeah. So I would say these debate around the possible function of non-coding fragments really is one of the most heated debates in the mm. field Interesting. because you have those who believe that and those would be those so those who believe that every single nucleotide in any genome has a particular function those would subscribe to adaptionist views mm -hmm. meaning that you know the evolutionary biologists who believe that every single trait out there has been shaped by natural selection right. and has been selected for right. Um, so this is one school of thought. But then you have uh, other school of thought, which I think it has gained more ground lately, I want to say in the past 20 to 30 years perhaps. Those would be neutralists. Uh, they are also evolutionary biologists, of course, but they, they believe that most traits that are seen out there in nature, including nucleotides at the DNA level, meaning including non-coding sequences, they actually exist not because they were selected for by natural selection, but because they were just fixed in the population via uh, random processes such as genetic drift. Now, I know there's a lot of you know, jargon in what I just said, and I'm happy to break those down, but when you are trying to explain evolution, you really cannot shy away from certain terms. Right. But those would be the two schools of thoughts, yeah. Um, if I may, Matthias, speaking of evolution and DNA um, and debate, I'm aware of there being a distinction between junk and adaptive DNA, and I was wondering if you could unpack what exactly that debate is, maybe for you know your average person in the street. What what 
what are what is at stake in that debate and what are people debating sure absolutely so again those let's call the neutralists those who believe that traits can exist in nature because of random stochastic processes they would call non-coding sequences junk dna okay. meaning that those sequences do not have specific biological functions they're just sitting there because because of drift, because of stochastic uh, events in the past evolutionary time, those sequences have been fixed in the population. Now, the other school of thought or the opponents to neutralists are those who subscribe to adaptionism. So the idea is that for them, there is no such a thing as non-coding DNA. Even though these fragments are not encoding or are not producing proteins, they have all their biological functions that we're not aware of. So those biological functions can be either structure, structural, meaning that we often forget that you know the genome has a 3D structure, right? It's a molecule, It's there is matter, it occupies space. So non-coding sequences might help shape the 3D dimension of the genome, so that's already a function, but also regulatory function, meaning that non-coding fragments might not be coding for proteins, but they are regulating the, uh, the protein coding genes. So that would be the debate of whether junk DNA is junk or whether junk DNA actually has a function. Okay, and um, so I appreciate that distinction, and that sounds like actually a pretty big, um, those are very different positions. Uh, where do you fall within that debate, and what do you hope to add to that debate? Well, I love that question because I try to answer that myself every day. So <laughs> I would say I like to shy away from radical veils. Mm -hmm. And I've seen, you know, the, I want to say those researchers, like the big names in the field, uh, over time, although they do push the limits of the field and they keep pushing the boundaries you know, and coming up with different theories and expanding the, the field, it almost feels as though inevitably they're going to end up being dogmatic, okay. right? So you run into these people in conferences and they are dead sure that, you know, junk DNA is junk or that non-coding DNA is adaptive and non-junk. And I want to shy away from that. I want to steer away, I would say. I want to steer away from that. And I think um, I want to say each case is a case, so each species evolve in different ways. And I personally believe that to begin with, non-coding sequences were fixed in the population via stochastic ways, via genetic drift. But then those non-coding sequences were co-opted for something else. So there's a term in evolutionary biology, biology called exaptation, meaning that something is adapted, sorry, something is adaptive, but not because of a trait that it was created to begin with. You know, let's say a DNA sequence is sitting there in your genome because of neutral processes, but eventually that DNA sequence um, accumulates or, or, or adapt, I would say adopt, sorry, or yeah, adopt new functions, and that is an example of exaptation. So yeah, I mean, I would fall in between. I do not subscribe to a purely neutralist mm -hmm. school of thought or a purely adaptionist. Um, I think that's very interesting, and there's something you said perhaps for being in the, you know, taking a moderate position. And uh, you mentioned genetic drift in your answer, and I was wondering if you could unpack what that, I think that's a term people have heard a lot. What exactly is genetic drift, and what might be an example of genetic drift? I think the easiest way to explain genetic drift really is by examples, because mm -hmm. it's it's it can be a little abstract to understand. So 
two examples, the clearest clearest examples of genetic drift are the founder effect or the bottleneck effect. And right. let's think about the population. So it can be of any species. It can be of fruit fly, for instance. So if you have a population of 50 fruit flies and they are all related with, to each other, and then you grab just one couple, one male and one female, and bring to another place okay. to found a new population. Well, inevitably, those two founders, that couple, will not represent all the genetic diversity of the original population. So this is a founder effect, and this is an example of genetic, genetic drift, because the new population that is starting with the, this couple will have just a little bit of the, of the original genetic diversity. Another example is the bottleneck effect. So instead of you artificially creating a subpopulation, let's say for whatever reason there is a disease that decimates 90% of the population of fl flies, for instance, the 10% resistant to that disease starts a new population and does not represent the original genetic diversity. So an example might be like an island population. Absolutely. Yeah, Islands you. are a great example. And also they are great study sites for the effects of genetic drift. Thank you. That's very, very helpful. Yeah, very fascinating indeed. Um, my curiosity is just going through the roof right now. Same. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, I have a question here because uh, you uh, obviously gave us a little blurb of your current research, and I just was very curious about this um, inter uh, phylogeny. Uh, Interphyletic? Yeah, interphyletic, mm -hmm. sorry. Um, so I was just wondering what is the, the benefit of studying that, and if, if you could just take us through a little bit of of that research there? Sure, so my studies are all computer-based. Okay. I do not grow plants, I do not rear animals, unfortunately, to a certain extent, and uh, I don't grow bacteria in, on plates. So I am studying sequences that are already present in databases. The good thing about that is that I have access to sequences of pretty, I mean, not every single species on Earth, of course, but most major groups. And that it, this is a interphyletic approach. So instead of, let's say, growing Arabidopsis, which is a, a plant species, or instead of rearing Drosophila, which is a fruit fly species, and focusing only on one species, I have the opportunity to look at organelle genomes coming from different species. And each and every species comes from different phyla. So phylum is a bigger group of species, right? You have a, a whole phylogenetic uh, or taxonomic, I would say, a taxonomic ranking in, in which you start with species, you go to genus, family, class, order, and then phylum. And uh, by studying species from different phyla, which is the plural of phylum, uh, you can have a, a bird's eye view of evolution right. across the diversity of life. Right, right, right. And and so what has your approach been so far? You mentioned uh, it, it's a computer-based uh research so are you is there some sort of uh algorithm or code you're using or are you comparing the uh genomes individually one by one like how has it been so far yeah well that's a good question <laughs> <laughs> i am not a bioinformatician by training and this has been the biggest hurdle the big the biggest obstacle to my progress i'm a biologist by training and i'm very excited and interested in the biological implications of bioinformatics research right. uh so my day-to-day -day life, I, it, it seems as though I'm always playing catch-up. I'm always trying to learn a piece of code or trying to learn a statistical test. And, um, but I would say, as of now, I am analyzing a few cherry-picked genomes one by one. Okay. And I'm doing that uh, with um, a user-friendly software. Okay. So it's, it's a software package. It's you know click and play, and it's easy. 
You do not need to be a bioinformatician to use it. But I also have collaborations uh, with researchers abroad that are computer scientists, so they know very little about biology. You know, like when we meet, right. I need to bring them, you know, start from the ground up. And they are computer scientists, they are developing algorithms, and with their tools, which we are developing still, we can we have actually already analyzed over thousands and thousands of genomes and to compare, again, non-coding sequences in those genomes. So the re my approach right now is twofold. I have a, if you will, a babe step approach, one by one, which I am doing right now in my lab, but we also have the, uh, you know, broad scale, interphyletic, again, interphyletic approach with algorithms. And there would be like, you know, something more aut automatic and mm -hmm. more, um, yeah, I would say more streamlined. Very nice. Yeah. Thank you for, thank you for mentioning that. I uh, also, this just came up. Um, so you mentioned that you were talking or you work with uh, people abroad that are um, more uh, I guess coding friendly, you could say, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. and you're more on the biology end. Uh, th th that kind of so sort of sparked curiosity to me as to what kind of um, I guess stepping back a bit, what kind of got you into this uh, this non-coding DNA field in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe if you could take us through, I don't know, maybe uh, th throughout your master's uh, program, maybe you felt sort of a gravitation toward towards it for whatever reason. Um, it seems it, it's very fascinating, fascinating, very philosophical in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was just I was just wondering if, if you had any thoughts on that. Sure. So, um, well, I have always been interested in evolution per se, and I say you know, I, and I say that I, with, like genuinely speaking, because I think I could study evolution in any level. I could be studying, you know, evolution at the morphological level, for instance. I could be studying evolution at the physiological level. I'm always interested in any investigation that tries to dissect an evolutionary process. But it just happens that from early on, I was, uh, I always gravitated towards molecular sciences. You know, to my naive uh, mind, I would say, because now I do understand that evolution happens at different levels, right? So I would never say, you know what, if you want to understand evolution, just study DNA. That's not true. But yeah, my, my older self or my former self, I would say my former self, I, I, I used to think, oh, if I really want to understand evolution, I need to go to the very, you know, root of the problem, which is DNA. Right. So inevitably, uh, you know, I found myself needing to Again, study bioinformatics, for instance, because currently, if you want to do anything with molecular biology, especially comparative work, comparative studies, you're going to be using bioinformatic tools, right? So again, I did not have the formal training during my undergraduate. I mean, I would eventually have um, a course project that would touch upon some bioinformatics, but I was not trained formally in it. And um, yeah, it just happened. I was fascinated with genetics. I, you know, I must say what it, what really fascinates me the most is that we all share the same genetic material in terms of in terms of chemical composition, right? The DNA of humans is the same as the DNA of bacteria. Now, sequence-wise, is different. Genes are different, so the the way the letters organize themselves is completely different. So I have always been fascinated. How is it possible that as the same molecule originates all this diversity around us? And I think this is this was what brought me to molecular sciences, DNA, 
evolution and then you know bioinformatics is I, I mean I had to it was a spillover right I had right. to use it so Matthias, you spoke a bit about your uh, master's and your undergraduate there. I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a bit. Here we are at Western, and you're in the PhD program in biology. What was your undergraduate and your master's degrees, and where did you study, and what brought you here to Western? Sure. So I did my undergraduate degree in Brazil. I come from Brazil, and I studied at the University of Sao Paulo, which is at least at that time when I studied, was the largest university in, in Latin America. Oh, wow. It should wow. be, if it's not the largest right now, it must be like, you know, top three, let's say. Uh, it, it, so it's a good school, very traditional yeah. school. And I went to, so we have different campus campuses yeah. there. And the campus that I, I attended, the biology department there had a very strong evolutionary biology okay. uh, focus. Oh, so that's right? where... That's where yeah. it came from. Okay. Because, you know, different biology departments will have different focuses, right? Yes. So you might focus on climate change, you might focus on physiology or med sci, but mine happened to be evolution per se, oh. and every single prof that I had in my undergrad, you know, the courses were always taught with this evolutionary realm, if you will, this um, uh, backbone. And uh, it just happened, funny enough, molecular sciences weren't strong in my department. We were more strong, like old school evolution studies, meaning, you know, uh, morphology. There was a lot of entomologists back home. Um, but then I, so during my undergraduate, undergraduate degree, I went abroad twice. I first went to Portugal for a short stint. Well, I was there just for one semester. But then I also came to Canada. I went to University of New Brunswick in Fredericton, and I was there for a year and a half. That was when I learned English, and that was where I, yes, w that was my first time in Canada. And again, I took on evolutionary uh, courses there, and uh, we organized uh, a small conference there when I was there. I helped organize, was, it's a small conference. And I, so I gave a talk and right after my talk, at the time, you know, it, I did not know him, but my current supervisor gave the talk right after me. So we, you know, we exchanged a few words. Uh, I remember giving him my USB stick and saying, look, you can use my USB. So that was how we connected. And then uh, it happened that he was at Western. I must say, uh, I did not know of Western before coming here. Mm. Uh, I actually knew very little about uh, Canada as a whole. But yeah, I connected with him. I liked him. I liked his research. And then I came to the, for the master's. So um, may I ask, who is your supervisor? And uh, where are you, if you don't mind me asking, your PhD journey? Sure, absolutely. So my supervisor is David Roy Smith. He is a full professor in, in the biology department. Um, now I don't recall how long he has been here for, but I would say he's I would say he's still within the young cohort, if you will. Okay. Um, and uh, what your other question was, where I am in the yes. PG journey? So I am. I haven't completed two years yet, so I'm in my second year. I started in January last year, okay. so it's been a year and a half. Uh, but you know, oftentimes I forget that I've been here just for a year and a half because as I'm a returner, a returning student, it feels as though I never left. Yes. So <laughs> you know, I've been here just this time around, just for a year and a half. That's got to be either very comforting or throwing you off in terms of. <laughs> oh no! Trust me, I'm very happy to be back. Okay. Oh, good. Good. <laughs> I I I was intentional about my return. I yeah. came back because I wanted. That's good. So I was in in your snippet, your blurb. You talked a little bit about the uh, applications of this uh, molecular research, and I was wondering if you could um, maybe touch touch on that a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, I guess with your research in particular, and more of a broad scope 
uh, any, anything I think is, is very interesting. Sure, yeah, so to begin with, I wanted to make one thing very clear. So my research per se has no application, meaning that, let me, let me back up a little bit, <laughs> meaning that what I'm studying, you know, I'm studying, it's basic science, right? So right. I'm trying to understand evolutionary processes by the sake of themselves, right? right. Now, of course, every knowledge coming from basic science has an application down the road, right? The, w the applications that can come out of my research and related research, uh, related studies, sorry, is that when you understand what the non-coding sequences are doing in those genomes, be it nuclear genome or organelle genomes, you can tweak those sequences in a way in which you control what the uh, protein coding genes are doing. Because if the non-coding sequences are regulating gene expression, and then you tweak with them, you can, again, change, you know, inevitably, you're gonna change the protein coding um, dynamics, the, the gene expression dynamics. But again, we know very little of what these non-coding sequences are doing in organelles. We know a little bit more of what they are doing in the nucleus. Because remember, um, eukaryotes, have they can have up to three genomes. So we have the nuclear genome, which you know is the largest genome and controls most of the cell. And then we have organelle genomes, namely the genome that is present within mitochondria, which by the way, I cannot stress this enough, every single karyote has mitochondria. And I'm gonna explain what the eukaryotes are in a second. And then the photosynthetic eukaryotes, those who, those who photosynthesize, namely plants and algae, they also have chloroplasts. Okay. And their chloroplasts have their own genomes. So eukaryotes can have up to three different compartmentalized genomes that are you know, talking to each other. Now, what are eukaryotes? I've been mentioning this all the time. Eukaryotes are any, or is, yeah, are organisms that have a nucleus. Bacteria do not have a nucleus, okay? So although bacteria also have DNA, just like ourselves, their DNA is floating around freely in the cytosol. Eukaryotes, though, they have a nuclear envelope, and that arguably really is the novelty, the evolutionary novelty that characterizes eukaryotes. Because by the, from the moment you have a nuclear envelope, you can control the expression of your genes much more readily, much more um, uh, in a more detail, a more, more fine-tuned regulated than bacteria. Oh, and so we are just about out of time. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, if anyone wants to learn more about your research, is there a website they can go to, an email they can reach out to, or any social media platform that you would like to share? Well, I don't have social media, unfortunately, but my lab has a website called arrogantgenome.com, and I think that link is gonna be in the description of the episode, uh, and you can find more information about us there. Thank you, Matthias. That was very interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. This, this has been great. Thank you so much. So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western. I've been your host, Fakundo Ladal, and my co-host was... Mark Ambrosio. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we have had the pleasure of speaking with... Matthias. And this uh, episode was produced by... Jordan Vanderbilt. Uh, if you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, please email us at gradcast at sogs.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Western Radio uh, 94.9 FM. You can find all of our episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.